Always oh, uh, great having him. You know him well, the Provost of Kane University. He is uh, Dr. David Birdsell. Nice enough to give us uh, a couple of minutes. A late request always comes through uh, for us, uh, ladies and gentlemen, here on LI News Radio. And uh, we wish him uh, a thank you of haughty uh, beyond congr- congratulations on uh, all that he has achieved. And I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, my friend. I had a wonderful Thanksgiving, Jay. Thanks. I hope you did too. Indeed. Indeed. It was a nice couple of days. And then we get back right into the mix uh, with all that's going on. Before we get into the Middle East stuff with you, I want to get your take. Uh, Obviously, we've got uh, some things happening uh, with the uh, presidential race. Uh, And Nikki Haley has gotten a lot of attention. Now in second place in many, many of Paul, David, uh, including some big endorsements. Koch, I, I just saw Koch. That is a massive endorsement for Haley. Um, what has propelled her to be in the position that she is in right now, even ahead of Ron DeSantis? Um, what, what do you think that she basically composes where she has uh, gotten a lot of attention in the last couple? Go ahead. There's a long, <clears throat> long list of things, Jay, and I think in, in no particular order, or at least not in order of importance, but I think all of these things matter when we're thinking about the viability of a candidate, particularly a candidate who's facing a challenge as steep as the Donald Trump hill she and all of the rest of the GOP challengers have to climb. So number one, Nikki, Nikki Haley is a really good campaigner. Unlike Ron DeSantis, who many people perceive as stiff, distant, really not very interested in engaging with voters, he's out there working the rope line. She's smiling at people. She's telling relatable personal personal stories about being a mom and how that shapes her experience and her policy agendas. But she doesn't make it all about just a woman's appeal. She's also thinking about and says very frequently, I'm the only candidate on the stage at debates, and I'll say more about debates in a moment, uh, but I'm the only candidate on the stage who has legitimate foreign policy experience. She was ambassador to the United Nations. She served in a presidential cabinet. She's been a governor. Uh, She's got a lot that she's able to convey succinctly and effectively on the campaign trail. That's number one. Number two, she's carving a different lane from any of the other Republican candidates. You think about some of the candidates. uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is trying to be the young, even more annoying Donald Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis has said, you can be, you know, I'm Donald Trump, but I'm more competent and I'm going to be able to get more done of what you want to do. And there are several other candidates that we can put in the kind of Trump light, Trump young, Trump somewhat different, but trying to be and model their candidacies on Donald Trump. You have others, Chris Christie, uh, Asa Hutchinson is no longer in the race, but Asa Hutchinson and others who are the anti-Trumps. And what she has done is to carve a middle pathway. Obviously, just as I said a moment ago, a cabinet official in the Trump administration, but trying to carve sharp differences, not about tactics, but about policy. And she's talked about tax policy. She's talked about spending. She's been very critical of the prior administration about spending uh, and pumping up the debt. Uh, so she's making arguments that are different from the other candidates, and that differentiation really makes a difference. Number three, she's been the best debater by far. And you and I have talked about this several times, starting right with the very first Republican debate in August. Uh, that we thought that she really stood out from the crowd. She was able to articulate a case quickly in a way that's effective in that very compressed forum, uh, and to be strong, but not to be unpleasant. 
Um, and that's very important when you're trying to win over voters who might still have a shadow of a doubt about where they want to go. Uh, so for all of these reasons and more, uh, she has been an effective candidate. She's really the only candidate who's moving in the polls right now in a positive direction. Uh, and that's probably going to be the story right through the New Hampshire primary unless something terribly surprising happens between now and then. There is no question. Uh, in my estimation, as well, the debates, she has been the leader of all three. Uh, and we got another one next week, by the way, in, in Alabama, Tuscaloosa, I believe, on the 6th. Uh, so uh, we'll see there. But she has really climbed those balls. And a lot of people recognize it, those those big endorsements. I mean, she's getting very, very big endorsements. And, of course, Trump will poo-poo it because he's got such a massive lead, 30 points and beyond. Uh, depending on which one you're looking at. But uh, in essence, it's it's not to be ignored. Um, now, something I will not ignore myself, David Birdsell, is what's going to happen tomorrow night. Uh, red versus blue, whatever they're calling on Fox. DeSantis Newsom, that's going to be kind of a must-watch for me for a number of reasons. Uh, I want to see DeSantis scratch and claw a little bit. And it's also, to me, a showcase, obviously, for Gavin Newsom. There's no revelation here. Um, because if Joe Biden is not the nominee, and I still do believe that he will not be at the finish line, uh, in my estimation. Uh, but to me, tomorrow is a very big showcase for Newsom. Because he will get to strut his stuff in front of a national audience and against... An individual, two individuals, who could be very prominent, if not in 24, certainly in 28, David. Oh, the, the 28 possibility, absolutely. I, I, I maintain an open mind about 24 in this case. But the stakes here are, at one level, I mean, he's got a lot of upside, Gavin Newsom does, uh, in this contest. Uh, he can establish himself, but he doesn't have a lot to risk. He's not running a campaign for any office right now. Uh, so he can swing from pretty much any side of the, we, we expect him to come from the left, of course, but he can swing from any side of the stage uh, and not suffer immediate consequences. And he has plenty of time if he makes a misstep uh, to recontextualize and explain and atone for those missteps. Uh, Ron DeSantis has a lot more at stake at this stage. Now, I, I happen to think, and I know that you agree with this, that this has been a sinking candidacy uh, since at least September and arguably earlier than that. Uh, but Beyond that, this is an opportunity for him to reestablish his viability as a general election candidate, because he's not debating a fellow Republican. He's debating a Democrat. So how does Ron DeSantis stack up in that broader context of American politics? He has a chance to make that argument. Um, and whether he can do that effectively and whether he can say basically, yes, I can be just as effective on a debate stage as Nikki Haley when you get me out of the shadow of Donald Trump as the person I'm trying to replace at the top of the GOP ticket and taking it to this, uh, you know, absolutely central casting California liberal uh, who would someday very clearly like to be president, whether it's 24 or 28. Yeah, no doubt about it. And of course, we were talking about that Koch Network, by the way. A lot of money behind that uh, former South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley. Uh, no question about it. A lot of money involved there. But, uh, you know, it's the latest sign uh, that well, donors it, it, are it, certainly it, it, coalescing behind Haley and bypassing Donald Trump, the former president. So 
Uh, we'll see what happens. All eyes upon that. Agree with everything you said. Uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow night. I think it's in Atlanta. Uh, and Sean Hannity from Fox will be uh, asking those questions there. So uh, we'll get a sense. Let's shift a little bit to uh, the Middle East. David Bursell, you had a, a sixth uh, set of hostages uh, that is expected to be free by Hamas. It'll be today. As you know, you got the pause on the fighting over the first five days of this uh, truce. I believe 81 hostages released, 180 Palestinians have been freed from prison, uh, many of whom uh, were detained of a charge, though. So the White House is pretty much stating it remains hopeful that some of the Americans uh, could be released today. Previously, previously, saying two women were expected to be free, part of that deal announced last week. The only one so far is an American Israeli citizen, it's a four-year-old, uh, who's been released. That bothers me in the fact that there's still about nine. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm angered over that, David Bird. So give me a sense what you're feeling here uh, as far as the truce. You have an extra couple of days tagged on here, what it means. You have a 10-day cap. Let's not forget that uh, as far as where we're at with this thing. But what does it mean right now as far as the overall picture to you? There are so many uh, military and public perception issues, as well as the uh, uh, tragic and terrifying human issues at stake here. What I believe is happening right now is that Hamas is using the pause in hostilities uh, and a strategic release of more hostages than originally anticipated uh, over a longer time frame to undermine Israel's argument that it needs to be and is committed to moving forward as quickly as possible on the military front and to build sympathy because of its willingness to release hostages. Now, mind you, this is uh, sort of a mind-blowing tactic uh, to kill 1,400 people and kidnap uh, more than 200 people and then gain international sympathy by releasing some of those people you did not kill but merely kidnap uh, is a remarkable turn of events. But that is exactly, in terms of global public opinion, uh, what we're seeing play out right now. Um, and Israel has been less effective at trying to elevate its messages and maintain uh, the centrality of the initial atrocity that sparked this cycle of violence uh, and keeping that prominent on the global stage. So the longer that there is a, a, a cessation of hostilities, uh, the longer Hamas has to regroup and repair, the longer it has to get the rest of the world to say two things. Number one, well, look, well, they're not so terrible. They're releasing hostages. And number two, well, clearly, Israel, you're able to pause here. Why can't we go for a full-fledged ceasefire um, in, in that region? I think those are the politics at play. Uh, we can't set aside the human tragedies involved with this, but I think that's, that's what we're seeing. Um, and right now, the pressure on Israel uh, to continue that pause and to try to release as many hostages as possible um, is, is absolutely tremendous. Uh, and I should add that that comes internally within Israel among families of the hostages, uh, as well as externally among people who may be more inclined to be sympathetic with the Palestinian cause. Do you think Joe Biden's response now, I, I, I think it's somewhat disingenuous in the fact that he has been Netanyahu's ear 
throughout, as far as humanitarian efforts, a little bit of a pause in the action. There was a lot going on regarding the prior-to-the-ground incursion going on. Um, But in essence, um, overall response, Biden administration, how they've gone about this, um, give give me an assessment there. Well, I I think... It's, it's important to acknowledge out of the gate first that uh, the United States, this administration, nothing is directly controlled other than aid of uh, whatever sort, economic and military, uh, to Israel. Um, and we don't know everything that's going on offstage in terms of how he's using uh, that very big stick uh, to try to gain concessions from the Netanyahu government. Uh, it is it is very clear that he has uh, been pushing for humanitarian corridors initially for uh, ceasefires of, uh, well, not a ceasefire, but uh, a suspension of hostilities for a period of time to allow humanitarian aid to enter and hostage negotiations to be uh, effective. Um, And what he's been reasonably effective so far doing is maintaining open dialogue with Arab nations that are not aligned with Iran. And this is one of the key questions in that region. Uh, Hamas is supported by Iran. Hezbollah, uh, to the north uh, of Israel, is supported by Iran. Um, And there are a number of states, including Saudi Arabia, including Egypt, uh, including some of the UAE uh, emirates, uh, that do not like Iran at all. And one of the questions for a, la- a more lasting and stable peace that does not involve the daily uh, engagement of United States money and weaponry uh, is to have those Arab states that are not aligned with Iran in some fashion involved with uh, establishing a peaceful uh, governance structure under the Palestinian Authority or whatever it is that might see, uh, um, succeed the Palestinian Authority. Well, that's a long way down the road, but that's the longer game. And the less violence there is committed in the meantime, the more likely we are to achieve it, provided that, and this is a very big if, and it contradicts the peace narrative, that Hamas is destroyed because there is no prospect of peace in the region right, exactly. when you have an entity. Yeah, there's no prospect of peace when you have an entity that is as dedicated to the eradication of one of the parties, Israel, um, and they clearly are, and is willing to commit any atrocity to see that end, and frankly is organized well enough politically and in terms of public relations uh, to get maximum value, however horrific it is to say, uh, out of the atrocities that they perpetrate. David Birdsell with us. Now, David, of course, is mentioned as provost of King University on Union, New Jersey, which, you know, on the chain, ladies and gentlemen, is pretty much second in command behind the president. Um, You know, you better than anyone can assess what's happening in and around our country and the college campuses, even permeating into the elementary school systems in and around Long Island has had a, a slew of uh, anti-Semitic type symbols uh, placed uh, here in that protest, it fighting. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, as a provost, you have obviously read about this. What is your feelings regarding how top-flight college officials have handled this uh, and could they have done better to suppress 
in some sort of fashion. You better than anyone gets a sense of what's going on here, David Burtzell. What are you feeling here? Well, a couple of things. Uh, you know, first is that every campus is different, and we've seen different kinds of responses from various administrators, uh, presidential, provostial, otherwise, uh, leadership positions uh, at universities around the country. Um, and I think some have handled it very well. Uh, some have had different challenges. Some universities have seen very little activity. Uh, others have seen quite a good deal of activity and a great deal of, of, of disruption. Um, and, you know, I, I think this all comes down to it and, you know, getting out of looking beyond the specifics of the current case, although I'll go back there in a second. In my view, universities need to embrace two values. Uh, at least, but out of the gate with regard to this kind of pressure, it, two values that are non-negotiable. Uh, number one is the safety, first and foremost, always, of the students we have on our campuses and coming to our campuses from residential locations. Everybody has to feel that the university is a safe space. Everybody has to feel that the university will protect them physically and in every other way that the university is able to do. Um, and that is absolutely non-negotiable for everybody who comes to campus. The other thing is that is that universities have to uh, guarantee uh, free speech and make that free speech conform to the standards we want to see replicated in society, which is to say respectful, which is to say concordant with uh, basic principles of uh, informed discourse, not shouting down speakers with whom you disagree, but disagreeing with them in the portions of forums that are raised to do that, allowing people to have diametrically opposed points of view and have separate events on campus to make that happen, uh, but to protect the safety, security, and ability to learn, as any university should be in the business of doing, how people are thinking about and framing problems and perhaps changing people's minds. Uh, those need to be preeminent values. Instead, universities have gotten sucked into, in many cases, uh, the, the business of taking political positions themselves. And that, it seems to me, is not where we need to be. We need to be talking about uh, ideas. We need to be talking about evidence-based argument. We need to be talking about the security and sanctity of human beings, and particularly those who are enrolled as our students, and trying to do everything in our power to foster the conditions where people can come together for reasoned examination of their differences, uh, not fighting and certainly not physical fighting uh, or intimidation about those differences, including very much differences of identity. You know, I, I kind of look at a lot as far as an entranceway for many to have voiced their displeasures. Prominent people that I see on TV, the vitriol uh, that has been uh, targeted for Israel uh, over the last uh, five weeks, uh, the genocidal acts, you know, I keep hearing the word genocide. Uh, on the uh, on the side of Israel, as far as how they've gone about their business here, uh, and it kind of amazes me. It's almost like people's uh, people's voices have been suppressed to the point uh, where now they have a green light to really lash out of their inner feelings and maybe prejudices uh, coming out with all of this. Um, and I say that because I think a lot of people are not aware, David Bird saw the history. Uh, and I'm going back to the 19th century here uh, as far as everything. 
Uh, I'm going back uh, even into 1947 with the United Nations uh, adopting a resolution known as the Petition Plan, uh, which sought to divide the the British Mandate of Palestine into Arab and Jewish states. Uh, I go back to the Six-Day War of 67, 1948, when Israel was created. I mean, listen, it's it's part of history here. It's an occupation. I keep hearing the word occupation. They've occupied. I, I hear people like Cornell West just sound off with, with such nonsense, twisting questions that are being asked of him, others as well who have been interviewed, and not getting to the core of this issue, which is the fact that Israel did not start this. Israel did not start this. Hamas did on their marching orders they got. But the vitriol and the mindset absolutely amazes me. The hatred of some of the uh, of some of the answers from prominent people that I see. It, it really is amazing to me. Well, I, I think you're entirely correct about the ignorance of the history, both of the founding of Israel. And if we think back, not just to the 19th century, but to the 16th century of the uh, uh millennia-long uh, pattern of anti-Semitism that we see rising up in so many places uh, in Western culture, and in Eastern culture for that matter, um, over a very, very long period of time. And, and, and the poisonous effect that that has and the easy recourse to anti-Semitic tropes uh, and to attaching that to allegedly neutral political arguments uh, in other arenas. That's absolutely uh, a feature of, of public discourse, and again, a role where universities uh, can uh, can can occupy uh, an important uh, influence in trying to help shape discourse around, as I said before, evidence, history, reason, um, things that we should hold dear uh, in the university environment. Uh, but I'll go back to something I said earlier that makes this problem so much more difficult uh, for Israel, and that is the steady stream of imagery coming out of um, Gaza now, uh, with parents clutching the lifeless bodies of their children. Um, we know that more women and children have died now in Gaza in the just in the last uh, weeks since October 7th uh, than in the Ukraine war since February 2022. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, uh, rate of carnage. There are lots of reasons that we can say that this was necessary, that it's Hamas's fault because they established military bases uh, very specifically with civilian human shields. And, of course, the demographics of Gaza are such that uh, the median age is under 20. Um, and so there, there, there are simply more children. Uh, and that, that brutal logic is going to affect the numbers that we see. But when you think about young people, seeing young people killed, it's very difficult for, to get them to step back and see a different kind of an argument. Uh, and that's when people who are not committed to the historical record and to trying to surface those truths have the greatest running room, the greatest likelihood of swaying impressionable minds. Uh, so finding a way to get people to take a step back to think about the complexity of the situation, uh, to recognize what started this problem, um, and to talk about the legitimate territorial aspirations recognized in the Oslo process uh, going back close to 30 years now. There you go. 26, 27 years. Yeah. Uh, that that needs to be front and center on the table. And that's 100%. the thing that the Yahoo government 
needs to take responsibility for because they, by aligning with the territorialist forces in the far right of Israeli politics, have all but killed the idea of a two-state solution, and quite deliberately so. Listen, David, you just you just nailed it, and you know people need to go back into the history books. The Camp David Accord, seventy nine. You mentioned Oslo, ninety three. They expanded that ninety five. Read about this. This needs to be in the classrooms. It needs to be there, and that's what's lacking all over the country. That's what's lacking. Before we let you go, you know. I have been touched beyond belief of this uh, Rosalind Carter situation. And yesterday, to see a former president, uh, age 99, in hospice care himself, getting a tailored suit made especially for him yesterday because of his weight loss, uh, and being wheeled in like that, the blanket on his legs, that of a, I guess, a character of Rosalind, I mean, that was beyond touching the heart. However you feel about Jimmy Carter and everything else, a former president and others there as well, Biden, Clinton, the first ladies were there, all of them, all the living ones. I mean, that was some scene yesterday and quite, quite a usually delivered. Remember Amy? You know, I was thinking about Amy Carter, David. It's amazing. Amy, we all remember Amy Carter as a little tot. <laughs> and all the troubles she right. got and everything else. Just a, mischie- a mischievous little girl back in the day. And now age 56. That's how old we've gotten. But in essence, what a scene yesterday down in Atlanta at that church. It was it was beyond. It really was beyond emotional. It was. Uh, and it was a wonderful opportunity in a time when we have too little of it to celebrate human decency, yeah. uh, to celebrate a man without an ounce of vanity in the way that he conducts himself to be just to be willing to put yourself forward in that condition uh and to have the willpower to be able to pull it off in that condition remarkable uh a person of deep um and moving decency again whatever you think of his policies what a guy it really was and when i saw that yesterday i I just stopped in my tracks and i got close to the screen and and just took it in just an amazing scene when he was wheeled in. Just an amazing scene. Uh, David Birdsell, well done, my friend. And we thank you again for always coming through for us, even that of late request, the fine provost at Kane University. Until next time. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me, Jay.